you turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, while you're doing that, very often when you read scripture, sometimes it's a little tough to, to see how this applies to you. You will not have that problem today. This is one of those passages that even the plain reading of it should challenge us. And I want to share with you a message that I've entitled, How to Spot a Fake. You'll, you'll notice in the background there, one of my trips down to Brazil, uh, we're in the Tres Fronteras area, which is the border of Paraguay, Argentina, and Brazil. And Paraguay is a free trade zone, so uh, you can go across into Paraguay and shop, and a lot of people from Brazil and Argentina do that. Um, but that sign is actually a real sign. It said, Genuine Fake Watches. Now, that's not a great advertising tool when you're talking about what most people understand about genuine fake anything, but it does describe some Christians in our world today. They purport themselves to be genuine believers, but if you actually pick one up, you see, because I can tell you those were not real Rolexes. A couple of things about those particular watches. Number one, they were $54. So if you added a couple of zeros, you'd be in the general range of a real Rolex. Number two, they weighed about the same as a Timex and not a Rolex, okay? So they were not the real thing. In handling them and inspecting them, examining them, you could tell very clearly they were not the real thing. I will tell you the passage before us as we look at the first 10 verses of chapter 3 paints this very picture of the body of Christ. You can tell ultimately by talking with and walking with and examining someone's life who claims to be a Christian to see whether they're actually walking in the spirit or not, whether they're actually doing the things that God wants us to do, whether they're actually living out their faith or whether they're pretending to be a Christian while living exactly the life of an unbeliever. It's actually quite easy to spot someone who is either one, not saved, or is two, very deceived about what it means to be a believer. And so I pray that the Lord will minister to you. This is a difficult passage, but it's a passage that every one of us needs to hear because it brings us to that place of recognizing that we can't separate our doctrine and our duty. We have to profess with our lips and then live with our lives. Amen? And so would you pray with me, and we'll pick up in verse 1 here in First John chapter 3. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to learn from you through your word, and we pray that you'd speak to us with power, authority, and majesty. Lord, some of us need to be instructed today. Some of us need to be encouraged today. Some of us lifted up out of the doldrums, and some of us, Lord, Uh, really need to be spoken to in a way that we change. And so, God, we pray for each of us that you would speak from heaven to us here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 here in 1 John 3, And behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. And I love how the Apostle John begins this. Have you ever thought about the type of love that's been bestowed upon you as a child of God? That God, from the beginning of time, understood fully who you were and what the problem would be, and that he sent his only begotten son into the world, that the world through him would be saved. 
that he's loved you in such a way that he sent his own son to die for you. For those of you who are parents, try and think of a single condition, even a single other person on the planet for whom you would sacrifice your child so that they might be spared. And now imagine that God in heaven, being perfect, sent his only son to die for every last person who would believe. Behold what manner of love the Lord God, the Father in heaven, has bestowed upon us. That's how this passage begins. That we should be called the children of God. He didn't make you a second-class citizen. He he didn't kind of, sort of, give you a few spiritual things. You have literally been adopted into God's heavenly family. You're a member of his family. You're not on the outside looking in. You're on the inside looking out. You one day are going to inherit the fullness of all of the blessings of heaven. That which is the Father's are yours. That which Jesus is, is yours to be as you are sanctified. And and so this picture is who you are in Christ. In order to know a false thing, it's good to know a real thing. Amen? If you want to understand that, those watches were easy. I've held a real Rolex. My sister had one. Pick up one of those things, you go, "Mm -mm, no, that's not one of those. Track with me here. For the world does not know us because it did not know him. You see, you can't know us unless you know him. And if you know him, you should be able to know us. Amen? If you look at God the Father, you should be able to see Christ the Son. And if you see Christ the Son, you should be able to see the rest of the family as well. And if you see the family, you should see the Son. And if you see the family, you should see the Father. If you understand who Christ is and who we are in him, that we are supposed to be like him, then it sends a singular message about who God is. It's not confusing. But in the world, there are a bunch of counterfeits. In fact, in this country, in the United States, about 80% of this country self-identifies as a Christian. And while I'm not judging anyone's salvation, I'm telling you that is absolutely inaccurate. And here's how I know. Because a vast majority of our country does not live like believers. They live like people who don't know Jesus. There's not a thing in their life that would ever tell you about God. And if you ask them about their prayer life, they don't have one. If you ask if they go to church, they don't, because there's no church good enough. If you talk to people about their relationship with God, they'll ask, what is that? You see, they self-identify. We're about to get a lesson that you can't self-identify. You will be identified with the life that you live. Self-identification is just a method of you saying, this is what I am. But if you say this is what you are, then you better be able to do it. Amen? I could tell you all day I'm a brain surgeon. You know how you're going to know that I'm not a brain surgeon? When I split open your head and start to do brain surgery. Ooh, you need to put that back. 
probably needed that piece. <laughs> Beloved, now we are the children of God, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Notice this. It says that you are a child of God, and it says when we are fully revealed, in other words, when you go home to be, like, be, be home in heaven, you are going to be exactly like Jesus. And so the standard is being exactly like Jesus. When you gave your life to Christ, you began a journey. That journey in a theologic term is called sanctification. It's becoming more saintly or more Christ-like is a better way to understand it. That as you have given your life to the Lord, you began a journey that one day will end when you go home to heaven and you will be fully like Christ. But in the meantime, you are supposed to be getting more like him every single day. You are being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Behold, all things, the old things are passing away and all things are becoming new. You are offering your life as a living living sacrifice to him, holy and acceptable. The standard is God's holiness and acceptability according to what he sees you should be. That means that we should be people of the word, people of the Lord, people who really, when we say we're a Christian, people should be able to see Christ in us, our hope of glory. The fullness of who Jesus is, is the goal. And we'll get to it in a moment. Admittingly, there's no perfect person in here. Not one of us is is a perfect replica of Jesus yet, but one day we will be a perfect replica of Jesus. So that's the goal here and now, is to be as much like him as we possibly can. Now I want you to see what, it come, what comes next. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Notice what it says. You get to join God in the work of cleaning up the mess that was your life before you gave your life to Christ. Part of the work of sanctification is you saying yes to Jesus as he says no to the things in your life that are not pleasing to God. It is agreeing with him. That's why we saw in chapter 1 and in verse 9 that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? So the goal is we say, God, you're right. Please forgive me because I need to be forgiven to go to heaven. And oh, by the way, don't let me wander around in the muck and the mire anymore. Help me stay out of trouble is another way to look at it. You see, for the child of God, for the person who names the name of Christ, we are supposed to be like him and we're supposed to help him in that endeavor of making us like him. I have to surrender. I have to submit. I have to say yes to the work of the Spirit in my life because I can say no. I go, I'm not doing it. I want to be a drunk. I want to be in this relationship I'm not supposed to be in. You know what? I have been ripped off my whole life, so I'm going to steal this stuff that I actually want. 
I hate that person, and they deserve the hatred, so I'm just going to take care of it. You see, I don't have to submit. It is my honor as a child of God to represent the Lord by saying yes to what God says about me. I'm his child, and there are house rules, and I should be playing by those rules. He further says, he already is that way. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Now notice this, sin in its tiniest sense is just simply missing the mark that God sets. You're aiming at the target, you miss. It can be inadvertent, it can be intentional, you don't hit the target. Sometimes we really sin and other times we barely sin, but we miss the mark. But I want you to notice what he says to intensify the meaning here. Whoever commits sin commits lawlessness. That means you're a lawbreaker. It means that when you're engaged in sin, you're acknowledging the fact that you know that some other way was the way. You chose not to do that. You were being lawless. We were driving back yesterday from Arizona. The posted speed limit for most of that time is 75. The traffic was going 185. I was trying to do the 85 without the 100, and there were people tailgating me, and I'm getting a little angry. I'm like, what is wrong with you people? Three feet is not safe stopping distance. And so... They were being lawless and careless. They knew the speed limit was posted. I'm actually speeding, so whatever they're doing, it's really bad. You see, I was kind of missing it a little bit and driving a little over the speed limit, but they were being lawless by tailgating at well over 90 miles an hour. Such is true with us as the body of Christ. You see, I can know what God wants of me and kind of dance around it a little bit. Fudge, if you will. Or I can be antinomian. That word simply means anti-against, nomos, the law. I am against the law. John is saying lawlessness is you being against the law. In other words, God says... You say, "Uh uh-uh. For the person who habitually sins in their life as a believer, you're saying no to what God wants. I'm not doing it. I know what it says. I don't care. I'm doing it my way. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. So how can you be lawless when you know that Christ came to this earth to take away our sins? And in him there is no sin. In other words, he doesn't have any, doesn't want you to have any, came so that you could be free of those sins, and you're saying, no, I want to keep my sin. That is a fake That's a person who has to legitimately say, am I actually aiding God's work in my life by saying yes, or am I hindering it by saying no? 
whoever abides in him does not sin. Now, I'm going to dig into this a little bit because this passage is so frightening that there are people that want to throw themselves off of a theologic bridge after reading it. Because if it is as it says in English, it basically says if you ever sin after becoming a believer, you're not a believer. But that isn't what it says. So be safe here. We'll cover it. Whoever abides in him does not sin. And whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. I want to look at this really, really carefully and closely. You see, because the truth of the matter is, There's not a person in this room who, after becoming a believer, has not sinned. And I can say that with some authority, and let me tell you why. The Bible says so. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his ministry, actually declared himself the chief of sinners, active, first person present. Let me give you a list of the sinners in the Bible who sinned after coming into some kind of a relationship with the Lord, either in the Old Testament or the New. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. You see, those men sinned after saying yes to the lordship of God the Father in the Old Testament and being a preview of God's grace in that sense. David was not just kind of sort of a a, a baby sinner. He was a well-practiced sinner. Amen? Amen? He was a liar, a cheat, an adulterer, and a murderer as the king of Israel. Peter, some people say, well, that's all Old Testament. Peter. Peter says to the Lord, I'll never deny you. What does he do? Deny the Lord three times. What does he do in addition to that? Because he's scared for his own life, he not only lies about knowing Jesus, but he begins to curse and swear. You see, fact of the matter is, we all have a little bit of the old nature still left in us. There's a little tiny bit of Adam. And if we really care about pleasing God, we need to be stomping on that little tiny bit of Adam. We need to be putting some serious hurt on the old man. That's not you punching out your husband's ladies. That's not what I said. So if that's what you got, repent. In Jesus' name. How about James and John? They're on a journey with Jesus. They're walking down the road. They're going to share Christ and heal people and do some miracles. And there's some people who are doing the miracles wrong. And what was their answer to that? Well, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and kill him? Well, that's Christ-like. That'll bring somebody right into the presence of the Lord. You see, the fact of the matter is we, we got a problem, don't we? We still have the capacity to sin. The question then becomes, not are you sinless, but are you sinning less? Because the process of sanctification will ultimately lead you one day when you go to heaven to being completely sinless. As he is, so you shall be. That's what the passage says. One day when you see him, you're going to be like him. 
You're already a part of the family. The problem is sometimes we don't listen to the house rules. And so what's going on in this passage? Because it's a bit frightening to me personally. He who commits sin does not know him is what it says. Is that what it actually is saying? If you were to be able to read this in the original Greek, which would have probably been from Aramaic to Greek, in our case, from Greek, it would have been translated to Latin, from Latin to German, from German to English. That's the general lineage of the English Bible. And so from the Latin Vulgate, if you were to go backwards just a little bit to the Greek language, it makes it a bunch clearer. Because translating it from there, it says, no one who abides in him practices sin. And no one who makes a practice of sin has seen him or knows him. And when we get to verse 9, no one who is born of God makes a practice of sin, for he cannot practice sin because he's born of God. Very important word in there. doesn't read well in English. And so the translators left out the word practice, but I think it's the most important word in there to understand this. Because that's the very thing that you find in Romans chapter 1. That's the very thing that you find in 1 Corinthians 6. It's what Paul writes to the church at Galatia, in Galatians, Galatians chapters 5 and 6. The issue is not whether you will ever sin again. The issue is, do you practice sin? Now let's look at that for a moment. Because the proper rendering of this would then take you to this place. If you want to be an athlete, what do you do? You practice. And then you practice some more. You do work. Amen? You go out. You sweat. You run. You lift weights. You practice the sport itself. You get very accomplished through practicing sin. Now put it into the context of our passage. You should not be practicing sin. You shouldn't be working at it. You should not be going out and seeing how much sinning you you can do to see how much grace you can get. You should be going, that's not the thing I want to get good at. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to practice it at all. In fact, I'm never going to do that again because I'm not supposed to do that as a child of God. I am supposed to be sinning less. You see, the list of sinners is the complete list of every person in the Bible, save God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen? But for us as the children of God, the ones adopted into his family, we need to not be practicing what we're not supposed to be good at. Amen? I'm not supposed to be good at sinning anymore. I am supposed to be terrible at sinning. So I shouldn't practice it. Can you say that about your own life? And if you can't, let me give you some reasons for holy living. Because that's what it boils down to. It means we agree with God and then we begin to live our lives in such a way that it tells other people we actually love God. Now before I say this, you are not saved by any kind of work. Is that plain enough? You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You're going to heaven because your sins are forgiven you, not because you yourself have erased them by some kind of work. You're going to heaven by grace, through faith. 
But if you've been given God's grace, and if you've been forgiven your sin, then the result should be that you desire to live like the one who paid the price for those sins. Because it cost God his son and Jesus his life. And so your thought process and mine should be, how close can I get to being like Jesus? Why? Because God sent his son to prove his love to you. He's worthy of it. He he didn't come and die so you could stay in the muck and the mire. He came and died so that you could be set free. And in this passage, as we see that God the Father loves us, We are God's children. In verse 1, we see what we are. I'm loved by God. In verse 2, it tells us what we will be. I'm going to be like him someday. And here's the the awesome part, because there's what what peace is missing. The here and the now. Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's what we should be right now. We should be saying to God, God, you're right. You're correct. I need to stop doing these things that your word plainly says is me missing the mark. I need to look at my life and say, God, is there any area of my life that does not match your standard? And help me adjust that. Help me to flee that sin. Help me to resist it. Why? Because the Lord's coming. You could be home in heaven today. And so we want to be ready for that moment. We don't want God to have to clean up an absolute mess at the end. We want to be nearly there when we go. Amen? I want to be as close to like Jesus as I can get when God punches my ticket. I don't know what my date stamp is, but I have one. There's a barcode on me somewhere, and it says the exact date that I'm leaving earth. It may be through the rapture of the church. It may be the end of my own natural life, but I'm going to heaven. I would like to give God nothing to do when I finally take my last breath. That means I've got some work to do, and so do you. But because we're literally God's kids, we should not want to disappoint our father. Those of you that are parents, you know the phone calls. My son did what? My daughter did what? They didn't learn that at home. Oh, wait till I... And you chastise your children, amen? And so God does for his kids because he loves us. He says, Jeff... That's not what you're supposed to be doing. And because he chastises those whom he loves, he chastens us. Here's the rule. This is what you did. Here's the consequences. Why? Because he loves us. He doesn't want to leave us like we are. The second thing that I see in this, a reason is that God, the son died for us. And look what he does. He literally takes away your sin. He doesn't atone for it. He doesn't just cover it. 
In the Old Testament times, on the Day of Atonement, your, your sins were just covered. They were obscured from God's view for a temporary period of time. And then five seconds after the Day of Atonement ended, you sinned again. And now you start racking up sins until the next Day of Atonement. They were simply covered. Christ took your sins away. They're gone. As far as the east is from the west, he remembers them no more. There is no list of your sins in heaven anymore. They're forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. They're washed. They're esponged. You talk about a couple of whoppers here. As a child of God, this is what's happened to you. Those things which you do, those little attitudes you have, that outright lawlessness which leads to defilement, which leads sometimes to defiance. Your, your mind just goes away from the Lord. God's saying, look, these are the house rules. I'm going to hold you to them. And because I love you, I'm going to take care of this thing. My son died for those sins. But make no mistake, that's not the house rules. That's not how you're supposed to be living. You see, Jesus came to take away my rebellious nature. Anybody in here? No, don't raise your hands. I do not want to know the uber-rebellious ones. Actually, you'd be the most truthful ones if you all put up your hands because in some ways we're all a little bit rebellious. There's a little bit of Adam left in each of us, isn't there? There's some attractions, those things which dwell in us that are fighting against God. But really, rebellion in this case is you willing to assert dominance against God's plan for your life, which, by the way, is the sum total and complete nature of the devil. When he fell, what was he trying to do? Be God himself. Amen? I shall be like the Most High. And in doing so, he drug a third of the host of heaven with him. And so he's saying, look, God came to take away our sin. Deal with it. And so he says to us, whoever abides no longer sins. And, and I look at this passage, it's like, no wonder it says what comes next. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness right, is righteous, just as he is righteous. Look, your new DNA is God the Father, amen? And he's righteous. Christ the Son, he's righteous. Now, don't harm yourselves. He who sins is of the devil. Again, it's practice of sins. Makes a habit of it. Habitually, unrepentantly, makes a habit of sinning. You say no to God, you say yes to you. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, God the Son was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy that work in your life. Because the devil is still trying to get you. Even as a believer, he's still trying to work in your life. He's still attempting to make you look at sin as though it's okay. That's why the psalmist David said, Sin, though pleasurable for a season. Repeated also in the book of Proverbs, sin, though pleasurable for a season, the end of it is death. 
Sin always destroys. But sin doesn't look like it's going to destroy. Sin looks like it's going to reward you. Well, that party's going to be fun. Man, Christians don't have any fun. I mean, all you do is you talk about Jesus. What fun is that? I'd rather toke it, smoke it, and drink it. Now, that's fun. The only problem is it doesn't tell you about the car accident and the divorce and the loss of your job. You see, it brings you into that situation and then leaves you hanging out to dry. Why? Because he has always been who he is. The name Satan means adversary. It means enemy. His works are an adversary to God whose child you are. Don't you think that the enemy of God is going to come after his kids? Satan comes after the children of God. Why? Because he wants to get to God too. It hurts God when children of God sin. And so if Satan can test you, if Satan can accuse you, because one of his names is the accuser of the brethren, amen? If he can destroy you, the name Apollyon, Abaddon, both mean destroyer. If he can work in your life to ruin some part of your life, then he feels it's a victory. It's why he's called the prince of the darkness of this age or the prince of this world. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. You being renewed in your mind and built up in your faith is a finger in the eye of the devil. You beginning to walk in Christ Jesus messes with the devil. You you see, what he's saying here is you can't enjoy, and this is a hard truth, a life of deliberate sin whereby you are not convicted in any way, shape, or form and claim that you're a child of God because that is the fruit of a child of the devil. That's why we're supposed to examine ourselves. That's why we're supposed to purify ourselves. Satan is a rebel, hence his desire to start a rebellion. God, the Holy Spirit, now lives in you. Think of this for a minute. God didn't leave you alone. Look at verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his, that would be God's seed, remains in him. You have a built-in aversion to sin. That little voice in the back of your mind is the Lord going, "Mm, that's not what you're supposed to be doing, Jeff. That's why Jesus said, when the helper comes, when the paraclete, the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict of sin and of righteousness. You're going to know what's right. You're going to know what's wrong. You're going to get a new nature. And the seed of that new nature is planted when you come to faith in Christ. And you start that journey. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. And in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Notice this. This is a direct context that that you can look at and see the contrast in the context. Children of God, children of the devil. Pretty simple, isn't it? How do you spot a fake? 
children of God, children of the devil. Here it is. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is he who does not love his brother. In other words, the person who has no regard for the things of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the steadfastness of walking in the Spirit, being reliant upon the things of the Spirit, God's Word, church attendance, all those things, the things that tend to push us towards righteousness. The person who does not feel that that's essential and necessary to their life, the Bible says, is a fake. Is the children of the devil. That's the contrast. And I will tell you, that frightens me. But it also enlightens me. Because it doesn't leave me guessing. So when that attraction of sin comes to your life, because it will. When something happens in your life to where you're tempted. You're going to have a built-in understanding. That's not what I'm supposed to do. You have the seed of the Holy Spirit saying, nope, not supposed to go that way. And you have the capacity by that power of the Holy Spirit to resist that sin. By the way, exactly what James chapter 1 teaches us. Very clear there as James would write to us, let no one say when he's tempted that I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. When you're tempted to sin, you're drawn away by your own lust, your own desire, and the devil says, ah, it's fine. The child of God has a built-in resistance to sin. You go, no, I'm I'm just not going to do this. I was talking to a a dear brother about his Native American heritage, and he was telling me a story of a guy that he knows is a member of the Cree Nation, And he was talking about how they give their names to their children. And normally they would wait one to two years and kind of see how a child develops and then give them their Native American name. This young man's name was Two Dogs. He literally had a name. And it had a a bunch of other names, but his basic name was Two Dog. And so in talking to him, he says, well, what is that actually like? He said, well, it was really, really simple. He said, inside of him dwelled two dogs, a good one and a bad one. And when the good dog was ruling, good things would come out. When the bad dog was ruling, bad things would come out. And sometimes I listened to the good dog and sometimes I listened to the bad dog. He said, I figured something out. The dog that I feed is the one that's the strongest. You see, as a child of God, what you feed will grow. And if you don't feed your spirit, I guarantee your flesh will grow. You see, all of us have the capacity to feed the spirit. Man cannot, shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Amen? That's spiritual growth. That's you feeding the right dog. Because you've got an old man and you've got a new nature. And if you feed the old man, the old man grows. But if you feed the new man, the new man grows. So guess which one we should do? We want to feed the new man. And in that sense, we want to avoid the muck and the mire and the mud of life. You see, the enemy's constantly trying to get you dirty. 
The problem is, is he, he uses the same tricks and we still allow them to work. I can tell you a little bit about trout fishing. If you're not a trout fisher person, notice I didn't say fishermen, I'm being quite respective of you ladies who can probably also fish well. But if you are a trout fisher person, I can tell you what will happen if you throw the same lure at the same fish more than four or five times. He'll go, that's made out of metal. I'm not biting that. You take the same fly, three or four cast. If that fish is not bit on that lure or that fly after the fourth or fifth cast, put a new one on, try something different. We people, not so smart. We are not as bright as trout. The devil can throw the exact same lure right in front of us and has been for the last several thousand years. And here's how it works. Girl goes by in bikini. Here's men. Guy drives by in nice car with wad in pocket. You ladies. He's still throwing the same lures. Still tossing the same bait. Power, passion, possessions. He's still tossing that stuff and we're still going, huh? What? We don't have to bite. We can say no. We can get trout smart, okay? That's a temptation from the enemy and I'm not eating it. And brothers and sisters, that's what the Lord wants us to do. You, you, can, you can look at this in so many ways. It's much like if you were to get a bacterial infection, you're, you're here today. It only takes one, two really nasty bacterium to get in your system. And they'll start a little club. And they'll begin to grow and multiply. And if you do not knock them out right away... They'll get involved in a bunch of your systems of your body. And before you know it, you will go from being kind of sort of, you know, sniffly to deathly ill with pneumococcal pneumonia in the hospital. If you had fought the fight when it was a couple of bacterium and you'd taken some vitamin C and gotten some rest and a little bit of chicken soup, you'd have been a whole lot better off. But instead, now you're dealing with full-blown decline. God wants us to be strong enough to say, look, I'm not letting a single bacteria into my life. When I see it, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to resist the devil so that he will flee. I'm not going to bite on his lures because they're not real. I'm going to treat danger like danger. I'm not going to flirt with it. And so he says, look, The way you can spot the real deal is by seeing what that person does with temptation, seeing what that person does with sin, seeing how that person lives their life. Because a person who loves God is going to hate sin and is going to love righteousness, is going to be holy as he is holy, as imperfectly as you may do those things. Your desire will always be, I want to be like Jesus. We have to overcome because we can. 
I want to make good on God's promise. There isn't a temptation that, that has overtaken me, but that which is common to man. Satan's been tossing the same bait. Don't bite and don't practice. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll close in prayer? And I, I want to, as I did the previous two services, I want to give you an opportunity. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, Pastor Jeff, I, I just need to know Jesus. Or maybe you're here today and, and you're saying, I, I have something in my life and I've been struggling with it. I just want to be done with it. And so would you bow your heads right now and if you're here today and there's just something in your life and we're just going to pray together that you've been struggling with for a long time. You haven't had victory in it, but you want victory in it. You just want to be done with it because you're tired of the struggle and you want to glorify the Lord. If that's you today, would you just slip your hand up? I want to pray with you. You got something. That, I don't need to know what it is. God already knows what it is. I see his hands up everywhere, all over. The whole sanctuary, his hands lifted up. Praise the Lord. Probably the truth be told, it's every one of us. We all have something going on that we could use a little help. Thank you for being brave and admitting to the Lord that you want his help. And so let's pray for that help right now together. Father, all these hands, Lord, they represent open hearts as well. People who know that there are some things in their life that you're trying to deal with and up to this point, they haven't helped you the way that they can. And so, Lord, we're asking that you grant them victory as they are asking right now, as we are asking, Lord, we know it's in full agreement with your spirit's desire. God, would you free them from the bondage of sin? Lord, those things that are a struggle in their life where they keep returning to that, that place that they shouldn't be. They keep wandering in those areas of life that they shouldn't wander into. God, would you deliver them by your strong hand? Would you set watch and guard over their homes and their hearts? Lord, their minds so that they would be protected from the attacks of the wicked one. And when he comes, Lord, would you refute those lies? Lord, would you show them the truth? Would you cause them to walk in it? And Lord, if there's anyone here today, God, that does not know you, as, as this service concludes, that they would be bold and brave and walk over to that prayer room and just confess you as Lord and Savior repent of their sins and invite you into their lives to be the one who saves. Father, we thank you for loving us. Thanks for adopting us into your family. Bless us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.